From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Mother, you promised to have dinner ready at 6 o'clock. I'm sorry, Catherine. I just didn't finish my other work in time. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio offspring we find all over the world. On the air, the web, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. I'm too tired. I did all the washing today, and I cleaned your room. Mother! As far as relationships go, you can't get much more primal than motherhood. The cliché holds true. Her blood is your blood, her body is your body, her love is essentially your life. And even though women can be at the center of society, not just bearing children, but running households, boardrooms, towns, cities, and countries, the world is still mostly patriarchal. Names, property, title, all passed down through the male line. The women of this family owe it to the men of the family to look relaxed, rested, and attractive at dinner time. However, in the Hunan province of China, there's a remote village that is decidedly matriarchal. In fact, in the town dialect, there isn't even a word for husband or father. Women entertain as many lovers as they wish, who visit under the cloak of darkness and return to their mother's house before dawn. And even if they have children together, the men still only visit in what's called a walking marriage. Australian producer Erin O'Dwyer traveled to Hunan province to explore this kingdom of women. It takes me two days and four plane trips to get to China's far southwestern province, Yunnan. Even once I reach Lijiang, a World Heritage-listed city with snaking cobbled streets and arching timber bridges, I have another day's journey to go. A bone-shattering bus trip takes me along a potholed highway that winds its way high into the mountains of the Tibetan Plateau. There are wisps of cloud covering jagged green peaks. A thin brown river turns through the valley, and we make our crossing on a ferry barge. My final destination is Lake Lugu, a pristine lake 3,000 metres above sea level, whose shores are home to one of the last matriarchal societies in the world. Because of their remoteness, the Mosso are a living fossil. They're a cultural fascination, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. Lijiang has always been a popular tourist destination, but until recently, few have made the trek as far as Lake Lugu. Now visitors are coming in droves, mostly from mainland China, Hong Kong and Singapore. What do you know about the Musso culture? Uh, yes, we know. We want to visit, if it's possible. What, what do you know about it already? Yeah, we just know they haven't got the, the real marriage, but the mother is the master of the family. What's your opinion of that? I think it's, um, uh, it's their culture. We respect that. Yeah, and we, we are curious. The Morso live in a few dozen villages scattered around Lake Lugu. 
In Shaloshwe, I meet La Cho Zuma, a pretty 28-year-old Moso woman with black hair to her waist. We sit on the veranda of her ranch-style house and her two small children play at her feet. Her mother, grandmother and younger sister are preparing lunch in a big open kitchen just off the main living area. Lacho and her partner practice walking marriage, which means her partner lives in a village on the other side of the lake. My family asked me to keep the tradition of walking marriage. Lots of girls my age chose to marry out into other minorities or Han Chinese families. But they have lots of conflicts with the new family members between them and their mother-in-law or their husband's uncles. Often the conflicts are quite big. So that's why I agreed to do walking marriage. This way I can avoid conflict with my in-laws. Normally, my partner visits several times a week and he'll stay for a few days. Whenever we have big festivals, we'll take our children back to visit his family so they can spend time with their grandparents. Would you like your daughter to continue walking marriage? Mm. I hope my daughter will keep the tradition of walking marriage so we can stay together and live together as a big family. If she marries into another family, she'll have to deal with that family totally on her own. If the husband abuses her or she doesn't have good relations with the mother-in-law, she'll have to live with that for the rest of her life. But La Cho's decision to do walking marriage hasn't been without conflict either. Her story shows the pressure being brought to bear on walking marriage. Her partner is from the Pumi minority who follow conventional Chinese marriage. He had hoped when their children came along that she would leave her family and go to live with his. In the beginning, my partner didn't support my ideas and my way of seeing the marriage. But after we had children, he had to compromise. I wanted to follow my traditions and there was nothing he could do. But I said to him, if your family need my help, if there's something going on, then I'll be there for you. His friends and relatives all laughed at him. They said every other man in the village is able to bring his wife and his children back to his house, and you don't have that. You're such a loser. I appreciate how much he has done for our relationship and how he's compromised. On a narrow path through the rice fields that surround Chaloshwe, I meet French anthropologist Pascal-Marie Molon. She's living with the Mosso as part of her PhD research, observing how the sudden shift in China's economy and the rise of tourism among the newly wealthy middle class is bringing rapid change to the Mosso way of life. 
There is change everywhere. Every society is changing. So, <laughs> Is there any reason to try to protect the culture as it exists? Or is that a redundant question? I mean, maybe we need to ask them what they want because they have their own agency. So if they want to preserve the cul- their culture, if they want to earn money, if they want to, to be modern, it depends what they want. This is their own choice. Everywhere I look in Lake Lugu, the old ways of life merge with the new. Villages with no running water and only basic sanitation have high-speed internet and satellite TV. In the corner of every courtyard is a twin-tub washing machine powered by a long extension cord and filled with water from the lake. Children watch cartoons on gleaming new iPads. Grandmothers in long blue skirts and crimson headdresses walk beside granddaughters in tight jeans and kitten heels. Ironically, it's from the Mosso's houses that I learn the most about the secrets of their culture. Okay, so tell us where we are. Uh, we are in Sialoshwe, a small village of Luke Lake, and we are coming in a Mosso house <laughs> where they are living, where the mother is living, and you have other, other bedrooms for all the family, and you also have the pork house. So the pork house is on our right and it's only a few metres from one, two, three, four, five bedrooms. Yeah, five bedrooms. And who would be sleeping in those five bedrooms? The young woman especially, the men, and the old woman is sleeping in the old house. And then on the left, what is this building there? This is the old uh, house of Mosho people where they are cooking, living. There is also the god fire inside. So they can do some ritual inside the old house. In the corner of the courtyard, Pascal Marie shows me where the local specialty, cured pork, is stored. Six pig carcasses lie on long timber shelves. Their organs and bones have been removed and they look like six large deflated parachutes. I understand that the pigs play an important role in the community. Can you tell us what happens to the pigs? When they have like a ritual or a special fiesta for members of the family, they kill a pork and they just put salt inside and papers. They just put it like in the house during maybe 10 years and then they eat it for that uh, kind of festivity. What attracted you to this region? First, it was the, the culture, because they have a specific culture, like people say they are matriarchal, but it's quite like matrilinear society. I'm very interested about their sexual union, you know, because there is no marriage. There is some marriage, but normally in their custom, the man is just visiting the woman during the night. The role of the woman is just ruling the, the house. Yeah, she's deciding everything. Everybody have to to ask her for something. Like she she have the money, so if they want money, they have they need to ask her. She's try to make everybody happy and yeah to keep the unity of the of the house. Pascal Marie tells me that the origins of walking marriage are unknown. It could have begun in the eighth century or as late as the nineteenth century. But what anthropologists agree on is that it was a way of protecting the wealth and the family bloodline. This is a very unique 
custom, you know, and we can learn a lot about the economic uh, way because when they do the walking marriage, the family of the woman have her own economic, um, how do you call that, like family, clan. So the, the man don't belongs to the family. So, you know, that's maybe also why they do the walking marriage. The man just live with his mother or his sister. It belongs to their economic family, you know. So this is a way to keep all the, the goods in the same family. We don't really know when did it start, yeah. But there is a famous uh, anthropologist who said that maybe it happens first in 19th century. She said that this is maybe because there, there was more cultural contact at that time, so maybe that's why, just to be together and to keep the society like the same, uh, the same ethnic groups. Back at Lacho's house, I wander over to where her younger brother is playing cards and drinking with friends in a corner of the veranda. They're playing a game called Fighting the Landlord. Whoever loses his hand has to drink. What's your name? And how old are you? And San, Ar -san, Ar -san. 23. And where do you fit in this family? Uh, He's the youngest child of this family. Um, and what do you do each day? What, what, what is your job or what do you do? In a more so family, the women take care of the children, feed the animals and do the housework and the cooking. I'm supposed to be the father to my sister's children. My job is also to build houses, go down to the fields to help the women and do the heavy labour works. Right now, I'm also helping my family with the tourists. They come in to have dinner and I help my sisters with the arrangements. What, what age do boys and girls start walking married? When we turn 13, we have a special ceremony to show that we've become an adult. But normally, we wait until we're 18 years old to start walking marriage. Would you like to continue walking marriage or would you like to get married to one person? Because we do walking marriage, we have no idea what it's like to live with your wife in a conventional marriage. So why have you... Continue. Sorry. Sorry to take you away from your game. So what has made you choose walking marriage? Walking marriage was part of our culture from ancient times. So I, as a more so boy, should follow the tradition. He tells me that he's doing walking marriage, but whether he has one lover or many, he won't say. Only after children come along do the more so make their relationship public. Are you ready to declare your walking marriage yet, or is it still secret? If we declare our walking marriage, that means we'll have children. And if we have children, in most cases, we'll stay together until the death of our partner. 
Basically, walking marriage gives us lots of time to get to know each other and confirm our feelings. If I decided to make my walking marriage public, I would first go to her family and bring some gifts as a way of saying, I fancy your daughter and I want to have a relationship with her. While our relationship stays secret, it gives me an opportunity to observe her, to see if she's the one I want to get older with. The more so drink a homemade wine called Sulima. It is brewed and served from a clay pot, stoppered with a cob of dried corn. It is made from barley, buckwheat and herbs collected from the mountains. Sulima is called the walking marriage wine. The more so say no one will have a chance in walking marriage if he is not drunk. The young women's bedrooms are located on the top floor of two-story homes. It takes courage to climb into a young woman's bedroom and to brave the sleeping grandmothers and family dogs that lie in wait. Young boys who drink the sulema become fearless. They fend off the dogs with bits of bread and meat. As I drive around the darkened shores of Lake Luku, I see each village lit up by firelight, with trails of smoke rising towards the stars. These are the Mosso fire dances, the nightly fiestas where young men and women meet. At La Cho's house, I watch on as she and her sister and her cousins prepare for the fire dance, dressing up in elaborate costumes. They wear pleated white skirts, bright chongsum silk tops and rainbow-coloured sashes that they've spun themselves from fine goat's wool. Their headdresses are adorned with beads and trinkets and jewels. The little girls can't go to the fire dance until they're 18 and I see the delight in their eyes as they gather round to watch. So what's it like watching the, the older girls get dressed and get beautiful? Oh, we're... Uh, we admire them can have the chance and we don't have and we wish we could. <laughs> we love dancing. It's hard being a little sister.
In Shaloshwe, the family with the biggest courtyard hosts the fire dance. These days, paying guests are welcome too. I arrived to find three big tour buses and inside 400 Han Chinese tourists jostling for a place on the stadium-style seating. The mood's not unlike a rock concert. The bonfire burns two metres high and the young men and women dance around it. To the sound of a single flute, they stomp and yell and weave around the flames. They're enjoying themselves as much as the tourists. And could you describe what's going on here tonight? According to the walking marriage, uh, fire dancing at night is one of the ways that young fellows and young girls can meet each other and if they fancy each other, they can have a chance to meet and flirt. So is this just for the tourists or is this for you as well? Uh, both of it, both of it, entertain the tourists and also meeting the young fellows. Do you have any young fellows? What's involved in that? Tell me about the dating rituals and the courting. Basically, uh, they, they, they dance around the fire first and uh, they will hold hands, you know, like the big group of uh, girls and boys will hold hands dancing around. If the boy fancy the girl, he will touch three times in her palm and if she responds, if she likes that person, she does the same back to him. So the tapping on the palm, that still happens? Has anyone tapped on your palm? Oh, yes. And what did you do? doesn't like that person. Why not? She really, she doesn't have feeling back. She doesn't have the same feeling back, so, you know, she won't do it. She tells me she's just 18, and I ask whether she'll continue walking marriage. If she has choice and if everything works out well, then she would rather stay with the mother, take care of the household and follow the traditional way of marriage. Why, why is that? Mm. Uh, it's part of our tradition and we need to keep it. Uh. Thank you very much. <laughs> The more so worship the goddess Gemu, and her name is given to the highest mountain peak. Some say the lake was formed by her tears. As a young girl, she rode a white horse or unicorn. But one day, when she was out riding, her horse became bogged. Her torrent of tears joined with the bog's muddy water to form the lake in the shape of her horse's hoof. Every summer, the Morso honored the goddess Gemu by walking around the circumference of the lake 
on horseback or on foot, or these days, on motorcycles. The journey takes an entire day. The Mother Lake symbolizes the love and generosity of the mother, who blesses them also and feeds their families. They honor the lake as they honor their mothers. They believe that if they live in harmony with the lake, mothers and children will also live in harmony. More so myths and rituals protected by the local Daba or shaman. Before I meet the shaman, I have to buy gifts, alcohol, cigarettes and packets of sweet biscuits. He's regal and reserved and sits by the fire with straight back and crossed legs. But later I catch him eating instant noodles by the fire. He pours two small shots of the neat clear spirit that I've brought, drinks one, then tips the second on the flames. This is for the fire god. The Morso have no written language, only a pictorial script, much like Egyptian hieroglyphics. Beside the shaman is a small, brightly painted cabinet where he keeps his book of pictorial prayers, printed on rice paper. He tells me his job is to perform family rituals. In the first month of the baby's life, at adulthood ceremonies, and at funerals. My uncle was a shaman, and his uncle before him. It's a great honour to have a shaman in the family. Before anyone wants to build a house, they will invite me to the land first, and I will calculate the best position to build the house. I use a rope to measure the land, according to the family members' years of birth. Then I use the ancient Chinese compass to calculate the direction. Some rituals are very complicated. If a woman gives birth to a child, the family will invite me to come and give a name to the baby, according to the age of the woman, the time of birth, and some other details. After that, the local Tibetan priest will come and give a formal name to the child. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. We're in the middle of Kingdom of Women, the story of one of the last matriarchal cultures in the world in a remote part of Hunan Province, China. There, property and children stay with the mother. She raises her children with her brothers, while the father only visits a few times a week. 
The system is in danger of disappearing now that so many tourists have taken notice. Let's get back to Kingdom of Women. I'm Erin O'Dwyer, and I'm in the far southwest of China, in Lake Lugu, with the Morso people, one of the last matriarchal societies in the world. Already some of the Morso's customs are fading. In the main room of each house is a small cupboard called the Life and Death Gate. Dead bodies were kept in this small room for six or seven days, and women had their babies there. Now women have their babies in hospital and the dead are taken to the morgue. Many are concerned tourism is bringing even more change to Lake Lugu. Back in Shaloshui, La Chodzu Ma tells me her village has changed dramatically in just a few years. In the old days, People shared their food. We helped each other in the fields and building houses. People didn't have locks on their doors, and you could just walk into a family house and eat whatever they had. In the old days, people had trust in each other. Now there's less harmony and less sharing. It's not so easy to get help, and only your close family or your friends will help you. Tourism has brought great prosperity to Lake Lugu. In Shaloshui, tourists pay five Australian dollars per head, or 30 RMB, to see the fire dance. The money is split between the families in the village, which means La Cho's family is earning about 80 Australian dollars, or 500 RMB per day. Only a decade ago, that was beyond her family's comprehension. In the old days, we were very poor. When I was at school, my mother had heart problems and needed to go to hospital. The doctor said if we had 100,000 RMB, we'd be able to cure her. Back then, we couldn't imagine even having 100 RMB. And even if we sold all the land in the village, we wouldn't be able to get that much money. We had no road, so we had to walk to school. The school was far away, so we'd walk there on Monday and come back on Saturday. We slept there and had to cook for ourselves. Sometimes there wasn't enough food for me to take and my parents would run round the village trying to borrow rice. Also, we only had two sets of clothes, one for Chinese New Year and one for the rest of the year. If the dress was torn, we had to mend it over and over again. Today, La Cho's wearing blue jeans and a tight pink T-shirt. She hosts tour groups at lunch and performs at the fire dance at night. But clearly, tourism is both a blessing and a curse. Before I came here, I read about the red light district. Thai and Han Chinese prostitutes dress up as Moso girls, appealing to the idea among some tourists that walking marriage means free love. When I go looking, I find a handful of unremarkable karaoke bars. 
But La Chodzu Ma tells me there's a prostitution of sorts happening in her own village. She says free love, which is a foreign concept to the Moso, is undermining the spirit of walking marriage. Lots of people have learned very bad habits from the tourists. There are so many tourists coming in, lots of Chinese women or young Chinese girls, and our fellas from around the village flirt with them and do walking marriage with them. Some girls are doing it as bad as the boys, but relatively few. The boys do it either for fun or making money. Walking marriage does have moral restrictions. If two people make their relationship public, the whole village knows and they stay together. If one has a lover or is unfaithful, then the whole village knows that too and criticises that person. The older generation has a different view of tourism. A few houses away, I meet the Cho sisters. They're aged in their 60s and 70s and have shared responsibility for raising their eldest sister's children and grandchildren. I ask if any of the sisters have lovers, but no one knows and the women won't tell. It's in the dark, they say. The middle sister is the head of the household because she's the best educated and the best organised of the three. <laughs> Cabbages, cucumbers, and uh, leek. This is dinner? Yeah, this is dinner for tonight. What was it like for you when you were a girl? When I was a younger mm. girl, we only have uh, potatoes and beans and not much mm. to eat, and uh, the food is not enough for everybody. But now we can eat whatever we want, and there's plenty. So that's a positive for bringing in the tourists. Uh, yeah. Yeah, positive. It's quite positive from this perspective. Yeah. Everything is good. Interviewing the older Moso is not always easy. They speak little Mandarin and mostly dialect. As well as our own translator, we ask a village local to help us understand them. In the early morning, I wake up, start the fire, burn incense and renew the fruit offerings to the gods. Then I feed the pigs, make breakfast and organise chores for the day. I have to take care of everything in the household and it's quite stressful sometimes. I take charge of the family finances, even though what we have is shared. Yes, and she maintains relationships between all the relatives and makes sure everyone is getting along. What she means is that in our Morso family, everyone has responsibility for raising the children. The child is the common asset of the family. When the child grows up, she has responsibility to look after each member of her family. For example, in this family, among the seven sisters, two are single and have no children. But they don't have to worry about the future. 
there will be someone to take care of them. When we live together, if one sister can't get along with the other one, the older sister will criticise her younger sister, and so on down the line. That way we can improve each other. Even though we don't live with our partners, the uncle is there to help out with fishing, with raising the children, and with the heavy labour work. At the home of Aya Sigeng Ma, a 70-year-old Morso grandmother, I'm ushered in to sit by the fire. She sleeps here in a narrow bunk bed built into the intricately carved timber wall panelling. Around us are four or five low timber tables, which at night are filled with rowdy tourists. Her skin is sun-darkened and heavily lined, and she wears a navy skirt, a velvet vest and a woolen crimson scarf wound around her head. We drink thick yak butter tea as she roasts corn cobs, dumplings and potatoes on the fire. There are lychees and peaches too to share. Only a decade ago, fare like this would have been unimaginable. She welcomes the tourists who are bringing wealth and prosperity. In the old days, we didn't have enough food to eat, and so there was a lot of theft in the village. Now the tourists come in and they bring money, so we have a really good livelihood. They come with goodwill and we welcome them. In my eyes, they are our lifesavers. For older Musso, the pain of hunger and poverty is ingrained in their memory. Sigeng Ma was the middle of eight children, and at six she was sent to live with a wealthy local family. I was given my food, but received no salary. My job was to take care of the animals. I really missed my parents and the rich family punished me. They would tie my hands together and spray me with cold water and refuse to feed me. Sometimes I met my parents on the road and they cried for me, but there was nothing they could do. When Sigeng Ma was 10, the Red Army arrived in Lake Lugu. The rich landlords fled and officials made her head of the household. But the Cultural Revolution brought more hardship for the Mosso. The Red Army stopped us from practising our traditions. We would dress up in secret and dance around the fire. We couldn't practise funeral rites in our homes, but we would send the dead body to the mountains and invite monks in secret to say prayers. The government offered us marriage certificates, but nobody went and got the certificates. My lover at the time had no sisters, only a brother, so he invited me to come and live with him in this house. The government said to us, now you're married but we never went to collect our marriage certificate. (laughs) 
Some say the lake was formed by a giant fish. A cowherd was taking care of his master's animals, and in return, he received a piece of ham every day. One day, a cow wandered into a mountain cave. The cowherd followed and found a giant fish swimming in a small pond. He cut meat from the fish, and the fish grew back. He began to refuse his master's ham, and every day ate meat from the fish. One day, his master became curious. He followed the herd into the mountains, and when he saw the giant fish, he wanted it for himself. The next day, he returned, bringing lots of men to help him. But when they pulled the fish out of the water, the pond exploded and flooded the valley. The only person to survive the flood was a woman, who jumped into a wooden pig trough to stay afloat on the rising waters. That is how the lake was formed, and why the Morsos wooden canoe is called the pig trough boat. In a tea house on the edge of the village, I meet Chao Ming, a 25-year-old Mosso man with tattoos, piercings and a grungy black T-shirt. When he was 17, he left Lake Lugu to work in a paper factory in Guangdong province. At the time, he couldn't speak a word of Mandarin. Two years ago, he returned to open the tea house for tourists. Mm. In the factories, all I felt like I did was work. I went to work, I went home. I slept and I went to work again. I was tired of that kind of life, so I returned here. I have much more control over my life and I don't have to work like a slave or like a machine. In the city, I realised that our way of seeing relationships is totally different. People I met didn't know about our walking marriage. I was dating a girl and I told her about our traditions and she totally freaked out. She said she wouldn't be my girlfriend. What I discovered in the city is that one woman is meant to be with one man. Now I feel like I would rather settle down with one girl and marry her and stay with her until I get older. In the city I saw older people holding hands and walking in the park together and I felt really touched. I feel like relationships should be stable and you should stay together, for better or for worse. Improved transport is changing China's social fabric, opening up regions that were once remote. A new road into Lake Lugu from the nearest city, Lijiang, has cut the journey from eight hours to six, and now tourist numbers have doubled in just one year. But new roads also draw young Moso away. Some, like Chao Ming, return with new ideas. 
others, like Yu Zhen Zhu Ma, who's studying medicine in neighbouring Sichuan province, may never return. Why has your father encouraged you to study? My uncle, who I call my father, is a carpenter and he's worked very hard to send me to college. He thinks with more education, we'll have a better way of life and we won't have to repeat the life that he and his father have where you have one meal today, but you don't know where the next meal's coming from. Mm. I'm on my summer holidays at the moment, helping my family out with the tourists. Mm. I don't know if I'll come back to live here. As you can see, there aren't many big hospitals in this region, and not many jobs. I don't know whether I'll continue walking marriage. The right guy hasn't arrived yet. But I don't think our culture will necessarily change because of better education. With more education, people are able to go out and learn more about the world. So they learn alternative ways of thinking. If there's a problem, they can see it has lots of dimensions and they can voice their opinions and consider the problem in more dynamic ways. Bing Ma has built a guest house on the edge of the lake. It's three storeys built from local timber and taped to the walls of its ground floor bar are photographs of Chinese tourists enjoying the local liquor. A strapping 33-year-old, he's Sha Shui's village leader. He lives in the guest house alone and likes the independence and freedom that walking marriage gives him. But he returns to his wife's house most evenings to eat dinner with her and their young son. Tourism, he tells me, brings good and bad. A new airport, due to be completed within a year, will bring more high-end tourists to Lake Lugu. But big business has little interest in protecting culture. I don't like the idea of the high-end cooperatives coming in. They'll change lots of things here and the local people won't get a share of the wealth. At the moment, people share equally what the tourists bring in but they'll get much less from the big cooperatives. They're not from our culture. They just want to do business. They don't care whether the culture is preserved or destroyed. For us, it's very important. Of course, the tourists come in and things appear to change a lot, but our family systems remain intact and family ties us together. The grandma makes sure that everyone follows traditions and knows his own place. She's the leader, she's the guardian, and she's the reminder of our preserved culture. The Mulso are a society on the brink of change. They're vulnerable to the forces of modern China. But equally, they want tourism and they want to share their culture with the world. As I leave Lake Lugu, I wonder how it will look in 10 years' time. Will it be like the heritage-listed old town of Lijiang, its narrow laneways choked with travellers from around the world? Or will the goddess Gemu, 
preserve the spirit of the land here and with it the people's ancient way of life. In the end, we must accept that society is always changing and trust the mothers and grandmothers to rule their kingdom with the same wisdom they have for hundreds of years. Kingdom of Women was produced by Erin O'Dwyer with sound engineer Timothy Nicastri for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's 360 Documentaries. I come from a travelling family. Travellers got their name because they were so fond of travelling around the world in a caravan. Matriarchy doesn't quite describe the system in our next story, but it is about a culture in which women gain more and more respect as they get older. Older being a relative term. Many of the women marry as teenagers, in extravagant dresses, in no-holds-barred ceremonies, and have large families. By the time their children are grown, their authority is well established. Here's the hidden world of Traveller Girls. My name is Helen Connors. I live in Hazel Hill, Dublin 24. I come from a travelling family. Travellers got their name because they were so fond of travelling around the world in a caravan. They'd have their wagons and their horses. You'd see them along the roadside. You could be in Dublin today, you could be in Cork tomorrow. That's how travellers got their name. We call you settled people. I sing a tune to the cows in the meadow And I whistle as I walk through the rain and the snow And my shoulders hurt from carrying this load I want to see the fire glow. Travelling girls don't really mix much with settled girls. The ways of living, caravans, side of roads, kind of a come and go thing. My name is Shirley Mott, I'm 23 years of age, three children. My family is a travelling family. But with my travelling clan, I'm happy as a bean in a can with my travelling clan. I'm happy as Japan in a pan. There are many similarities between Traveller and Roman Gypsy culture, but Travellers are historically nomadic, indigenous Irish minority. My name is Mary Burke. I'm an associate professor at the University of Connecticut in Irish literature. For many generations, Travellers provided services to an Ireland that was predominantly agricultural, seasonal farm labour, tinsmithing, horse trading. Romanese introduced travellers to wagons. The wagons then were overtaken by caravans and caravans. They were overtaken by mobile homes. But the vast majority of travellers today live in houses at certain times of the year. But that doesn't mean that prejudice or identity disappear. I was bullied an awful lot in school. You were a knacker or you were a pikey in a solid tear like every day. You'd be in trouble fighting, trying to take up for yourself. I didn't learn a lot in school. If I said to the teacher, I can't do that, can I have some help? I had one teacher that said to me, why would you want to know how to read and write? A traveller won't do nothing with their life. You're going to go off and get married young and have loads of children. So I was just put down to the end of the class and everyone else was up on top. School is set up, the whole society is set up for kids who live in a house all year long, so for kids who moved around as traveller kids used to do. That led to a cultural attitude in Ireland that traveller kids weren't interested in learning, couldn't learn, and that carries over into today. In most travelling families, it's very, very strict with girls. Some mothers and fathers is too strict where they wouldn't be allowed to go anywhere. You know, and that wasn't done the right way to be kind of a punishment. 
So this is why most travelling girls does get married young, because they want to get away from that. Travelling girls, most of them today, be like 16, 17 and 18, which will want marriage. You have three stages in life. You have your communion, confirmation, and then you get married. In travelling girls, your wedding day is your dream. Everything has to be big. You have to have a big wedding dress, big crown, big cars, big horse and carriage. I'm here at the Carmia Horse Fair. I've been coming here for the past 20 years. The horse fair, the travellers come from all over the country and they buy and sell horses. You'd have to be here to witness it, to see the style, the fashion of the travelling women, yeah. Give it a couple of more hours and they'll start parading. My name is Terence McGough from Killarney. They're flashing their style to future husbands. The horse fair. It was a meeting point for families who were on the road a lot of the year. Everybody came to this one location, socialised, drank, sang, made matches, arranged weddings. My name is Vivian McDonald. I come from Monaghan. I'm 14. This is my uh, cousin Pearl, and she's wearing a shotgun orange skirt, a shotgun orange top, and my cousin Vivian's wearing a white jean skirt with uh, a white belly top, black gladiator shoes. She's got her belly button down. The girls travel in a pack, promenading. Look very glamorous. Lots of makeup and heels and long hair. My name is Terry McCarthy. I got married a month ago. When I was 13, I met my husband at a festival. And the minute I met him, I knew I was in love. I got engaged when I was 15. I had a big do for that. I got married 16. I had a lovely, big, huge white dress. Whatever you want on your wedding day, you have to get. When I got married, I got to design my own dream dress. It had a 50-foot train. It was all diamonds and lace. Travellers too, you have a mini bride. That's a girl you just dress up just like yourself for the day. Your mini bride has to look like you. This is a satin dress and it has sequins on the bottom of the train. My name is Tracy Hughes. I'm in the sewing business 26 years. The travelling community, they come over now to us to get their outfits made. They're unbelievable for glam and for bling for these weddings. My name is Jennifer Hughes. I do a lot of clothes for travellers. This is a white miniskirt. I've used Elvis as inspiration, his white lycra suit, the flared one that he wears to his last concert. There is a lot of money involved in traveller weddings, both in terms of substantial dowry payments and putting on a good show. Rosalind McDonough, a contemporary traveller activist who writes on traveller themes, sees this wonderful ostentation that's often on show at traveller weddings as a kind of defiant traveller aesthetic. As women age in traveller culture, they gain power. They often outlive the men they can become matriarchs within the culture, particularly if they have a large family. This prestige attached to being the mother of many. The travellers, when I was a kid, they used to come round our houses making pots and pans and doing odd jobs. And in return for that, they might get milk and bread and potatoes. People will not tolerate travellers living on the side of the roads now. It's dangerous for themselves. I'm Paul Connolly, the caretaker in Hazel Hill, Halton site. The country's trying to set up Halton sites and get them settled get them to live in them. It's changed a lot now for travellers. They wasn't heard years ago, but now they are. My mother and father had 17 children, nine boys and eight girls. Myself, I left school when I was 11, but then I started a trainer course where I learned how to read and write. And then I done a childcare course. I passed all my exams. Now I can read and write what I never learnt in school. I can learn to myself.
The Hidden World of Traveler Girls was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, for their series exploring the secret life of girls around the world. The Hidden World of Girls includes stories of coming of age, rites of passage, secret identities, and women who crossed a line, blazed a trail, or changed the tide. To hear more work by the Kitchen Sisters, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And now, dear listeners, I want to invite you to our next listening event, coming Thursday, August 21st, when we welcome the awesome and talented Nate DeMeo to the Logan Theater to talk about his work with Third Coast Sarah Geis. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Nate's podcast, The Memory Palace, unfurls little-known stories from history in beautifully told, poignant episodes. Paris had the Eiffel Tower. And the men planning the next fair, the Columbian Exposition in Chicago, just a couple of years away, needed something that good. Something Eiffel Tower good. And that wasn't easy to find. Plus, he is also a screenwriter and author. Here's a big hint. Think Parks and Rec and Pawnee. Meet Nate in person, hear some of his amazing work, you may even watch a bit, and enjoy a night out and a glass of wine with us. For tickets and more info, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today's episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear nearly 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.